Hey, Safe Mode listeners, this is your host, Elias Grohl. For the final episode of the year, we're going to do something different. This week, we'll be looking back at the year that was with reporters at CyberScoop and our sister publications, Defense Scoop and FedScoop. We'll be joined by AJ Vicenz and Christian Vasquez from CyberScoop to talk through the big hacks of the year. Rebecca Heilweil and Madison Alder from FedScoop are coming on to discuss all things AI and government. And Brandy Vincent and Michaela Easley from DefenseScoop are going to talk us through the big space stories of the year. And yep, we will be talking about UFOs. That's up next on SafeBug. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm joined today by CyberScoop reporter AJ Vicenz. Hey, AJ. Hey, Elias. I'm also joined by CyberScoop reporter Christian Vasquez. Hey, Christian. Hey. All right, so fellas, we're here to look back on the past year, and I want to begin with you, AJ. Uh, 2023 was the year in which we saw a new kind of hacker appear. Younger, more brazen, super aggressive. Tell us about these guys. Well, I mean, I think I'd argue that there's always been like the young punk hacker type, but right. this year saw a rise of these incredibly effective, you know, teenagers, early 20 somethings. I yeah. feel old anytime I say these youth hackers, right? <laughs> but these kids essentially running circles around security teams at some of the most resourced companies on the planet. Um, social engineering their way into gobs of data causing tens of millions of dollars and lost profits and direct costs. I mean, it's, it's just been incredible, but not only that um, they also are sort of coming out of this community called the com or the community, which also has this faction of folks that do violence for hire type services. Yeah. So, we're seeing a blending of those two worlds in ways that maybe we haven't in the past, or at least overtly, where there's threats of physical violence to go along with things like, let me get in your account, let me access your data type situation. Not to mention these kids essentially either deploying themselves or working with highly organized and super effective international ransomware groups. Yeah. So it, you've taken it all together, it's really quite disturbing. You know, one of the things I tell people is that, you know, we write a lot about the Russians, the Iranians, the North Koreans, all disturbing in their own ways, but there's something about these, you know, American and British and Western kids doing these things that disturbs me in a way that some of these other stories don't. It's really quite uh, something. I think initially when we started writing about these guys, we didn't really want to talk about them as kids. We, we felt skeptical that, you know, the, these actually were kids that felt like there was this element of almost moral panic about it. But it's I, I think there is good reason to be concerned. And like, I don't mean to be glib about it, but the question that comes to mind for me is, are the kids OK? Well, I mean, it. It's hard to sort of have this conversation, right? Because 
one of the things that researchers spent a lot of time this year talking about was, you know, especially the researchers that pay attention to this community, is that they're kind of ridiculous like kids are. They say dumb things. They, uh, they're misogynist. They're sexist. They say racist things. They're, they're really easily dismissed as clownish and just why are we even talking about these people? But if you sort of set the clownish circus show aspects to the side what they're able to achieve and the access they're able to achieve puts them on par with some of the most affecting effective hacking units we know of. Yeah. So it's almost like they've forced us to pay attention as a community in a way that maybe, you know, some folks certainly have for a long time, but I think a lot, a lot of the rest of the community is catching up now. Yeah. And so these are, this is the group that we call a scattered spider, the calm, um, a couple different other names. They hit the Las Vegas casinos was the, the attack that really brought them into the mainstream, but they've also hit, you know, well-resourced technology companies like Okta and they're not like, they're, they're able to pull off these attacks. Right. But they're not, this isn't, they're, they're not necessarily technically exquisite attacks a lot of the time. Like, they're definitely technically sophisticated, right? But a lot of the time, their operations involve just getting on the phone with somebody and talking somebody into handing over a set of credentials. And this is where they're, the fact that they are American and British really plays to their advantage because they're able to speak to customer service people in uh, native English and really convince somebody that, like, no, they, they, they need the password to their account so that they can, you know, send an expense report or whatever to their boss at MGM resorts or what have you. Yeah. I mean, it really kind of reinforces the idea that the weakest link in any chain is sort of the human element, but also, you know, systems are designed in a way that even humans making all the right choices, these systems are going to let these failures through, but the social engineering aspects to your point about, they are in the culture, the American culture, the British culture, the Western culture. They can speak the language. You know, they're incredibly effective social engineers. And, you know, you'd never say you, you got to hand it to them um, because you definitely don't have to hand it to them. <laughs> but you have to hand it to them. <laughs> but you, it, they really have created um, methods and operations that should be studied and companies should really think about how they're going to defend this going forward and reevaluate their systems and their protocols and whatnot. Yeah. All right, Christian, let's, let's talk critical infrastructure for a sec. This is the focus of your beat. Uh, what did 2023 look like in terms of cyber operations targeting critical infrastructure? So operations targeting critical infrastructure was actually kind of interesting this year i mean you had a lot of smaller groups uh have a lot of claims to hitting ot that did not or operational technology the the kind of computers that run the uh these physical systems but you had you had a lot of claims about hitting ot but a vast vast majority of them especially with the the, the russia um invasion of ukraine was was actually pretty false. They were they were either exaggerations or they were just you know groups taking um, uh, taking a claim from some other group or something like that. But then we also had an actual uh, lights off situation in Ukraine when earlier uh, this oh man was it this month or last month? I honestly don't remember. Um, Time was, is very strange it's, now, it's, isn't it? It's been it's been a year, man. It's, it's been, been a year. year. Um, it turned out that. Uh, 
Russia actually did uh, turn off the lights temporarily in Ukraine, which was the first time since I think 2017 that that happened and a actually really major kind of event because that does not happen that often. It's very, very hard to do. And, you know, this is the middle of the war. Um, it's kind of the open question of whether it's more uh, efficient to actually hit it with a missile than to try it with a cyber attack, which takes a lot more resources. Mm. But the kind of interesting thing about this attack was that it was kind of, you know, quicker, right? It was only a couple of months. They could have actually done it much sooner. But, you know, why they chose the time that they chose, we still don't know. But that, that was like a really interesting kind of evolution of that. And at the same time, you have these other groups making all these claims. So it's, it's more like a lot more focus was in critical infrastructure this year, um, particularly around like um, these kind of cyber physical impacts. Uh, yeah, I feel like we, you and I in our conversations day to day end up spending a lot of our time like wading through what's real and yeah. what's not mm -hmm. when it comes to attacks on critical infrastructure. And one kind of on that theme, that I'm curious how you think about is these warnings that we're getting from American officials, U.S. national security officials mm -hmm. in particular, about China targeting U.S. critical infrastructure. This was a year in which U.S. officials really came out and they said China's coming after our critical infrastructure in mm -hmm. a big way. Um, the headline disclosure of which was when uh, a Chinese actor was discovered in a some kind of telecommunication system in Guam. Mm -hmm. Still don't really have a lot of details around that, right? And the claim was that Chinese hackers would use this access in Guam to potentially disrupt communications between the United States and uh, the Pacific amid a crisis over Taiwan, right? Like a mm -hmm. real kind of like hard military scenario. But, mm -hmm. you know, U.S. officials are also saying the Chinese, they're in our systems, they're targeting critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. How are you thinking about these warnings? Yeah, yeah. And you're talking about Volt Typhoon. Um, That's right. Has, has been one of the major actors in this. So it's, it's kind of interesting in, in that like before um, and before you know, I came to CyberScoop, actually, I, I focused on the energy sector. And these kind of attacks were kind of, they were talked about, but they weren't talked about as publicly. And I think one of the major moments for me was when he went to um, CyberWarCon and we had the NSA kind of up there on stage saying, Chinese are attacking us. They're using live off, living off the land techniques, which is essentially when they just have, they just use the tools that are already present on, on the machine that they're in. Please help, which was... I mean, it, it's kind of hard what what to think of it. I, I kind of have uh, Russia and China have always done these kind of things, right? Like there was a lot of stories back in 2019 and before about Russia and pipelines and all that, all that jazz. So this is not necessarily new and nations necessarily have, you know, a, a, a reason to go into these networks and prepare, you know, just in case. So they're going to be in our networks. We're going to be in their networks. That's kind of a part of the course. But from what what they've seen especially with Volt typhoon at that these are no longer just you know they're they're not just in the i, I don't want to say normal areas but they're in the areas where the nsa are saying these are disruptive attacks these are going to be something to take something down to turn something off to have a bigger effect mm -hmm. than you know a colonial scare or something like that so it's it's and it's it's really interesting it's something that like, I, I like to think about a lot to be honest yeah it's a fascinating space and I think when I, I started covering this kind of stuff uh, a little less than 10 years ago, like it, it was very novel, this mm -hmm. idea that states would be using cyber operations. And I think now it's just not novel anymore. And it's, it's a part of military activity, like state on state 
politics, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think AJ, nowhere is that more clear right now than in Ukraine, right? At where Russia and Ukraine, they're battling it out in cyberspace. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of look back on 2023 and describe a bit what did the cyber operations landscape look like? So the war rages on, right? Um, and it's reached, uh, in the physical space, it's reached a bit of a, not a, quite a stalemate, but the, the gains are much more incremen incremental. Things are tougher. It's really, it continues to be a horrific situation, even if the, the broader conversation um, doesn't focus on it as much day to day. It continues to be a, a horrific war. People are dying, that kind of thing. And on the cyber side of things, the attacks continue apace. You know, there's uh, sort of relentless cyber espionage, um, exploitation of systems, as Christian just described, attempts to in undermine critical infrastructure. You know, these things continue to happen just today. Uh, a couple of things were became apparent with the uh, Ukrainian's largest mobile mm -hmm. communications provider uh, going down. Uh, it's too early to say exactly what's happened there, but, you know, that's millions of people losing cell phone service and more than a million people that have home Internet service. You know, something's going on there. Um, meanwhile, the Ukrainian government is increasingly announcing the offensive operations they're doing on Russian targets. So it's a real strange dynamic. I mean, that's not something that governments are normally broadcasting their offensive cyber uh, operations. But in this case, you could understand why perhaps the Ukrainian government is trying to communicate something there. Uh, you know, more to come on that. But I think it's just worth remembering that there's a, a, an incredibly hot situation. It's ongoing, sort of ceaseless. And it has been for years, frankly, right, even before the war started. But certainly, as this phase of the war has intensified and is grinding along, there's more and more happening. And let's not forget um, that there's a whole information war aspect to all of it. Mm -hmm. And so as the domestic political situation in the U.S., centers on Ukrainian aid and funding and continued things like that. You know, we, we have a situation where our politics in this country can be, you know, manipulated for various points of view, various gain, um, blocking funding, these sorts of things. I mean, the situation remains highly complex and evolving every day. So, you know, I feel like overall the, the coverage day to day of the Ukrainian situation is, less but that doesn't mean that things aren't happening yeah i mean we're recording this on on tuesday december 12th um vladimir Zelensky is in washington today trying to secure additional funding for um his military he's looking for additional supplies of ammunition and the ukrainian army they're they're struggling to get breakthroughs and victories right and one of the reasons why the aid package I think has stalled is the lack of Ukrainian victories and the fact that many in the West, particularly in the Republican Party, see this as an endless conflict, or at least that's how they're justifying it publicly, right? And so one, one area in which the Ukrainians still can get a W is hacking into the Russian tax service and wiping its systems and saying, hey, even if we can't 
secure any major gains on the battlefield, we can still reach out and touch you. You, you know, it's a, a sort of a background question through all of these things. You know, you hear these reports about mysterious fires popping up around Moscow or key ammunition facilities or um, factories. Oh, there's a strange fire. Lesser discussed in public is how the Ukrainians and others, I'm sure, are reaching out and touching the Russians within Russia. Hmm. But it certainly seems like the Ukrainian government, when it comes to cyber offensive cyber operations, are more and more willing to say, we can totally ruin your day, and this is what we're going to keep doing. Um, you know, to your point, maybe this is, you know, you, you, we think about cyber as being sort of leveling the playing field, um, even if militaries, kinetic militaries are, are disproportionate, cyber operations and cyber means are not as disproportionate. So it's, it's a, from an academic point of view, it's really interesting, but from a real human point of view, it's a continues to be a horrific situation. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks guys for your terrific reporting on this. We'll be back, uh, talking more about all the fun events in this space. I have no doubt, uh, in 2024. Thanks boys. Thanks. Thank you. I'm joined today by FedScoop reporter Rebecca Howell. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Also joining us today is FedScoop reporter Madison Alder. Hi, Madison. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for coming on the show. So we're looking back today at some of the biggest stories on your beats uh, for 2023. And I think we have really no choice but to start with AI, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we'll see how you feel about it. Um, it was at the end of last year that ChatGPT launched, kind of kicking off the AI craze that we're living through right now. And obviously the AI story goes way beyond that, but it woke, I think, DC policymakers up to the need to try to make some moves in this space. Um, so I'm wondering if we might start in our look back on 2023 by just comparing, like, where are we in the AI regulatory story today, like compared to the beginning of the year? Well, um, probably the biggest news is we have this uh, major executive order on artificial intelligence that I know we've discussed in the past, you know, absent, you know, Congress being able to actually pass regulation governing AI. Um, uh, this, you know, at least in the Biden administration's opinion, is supposed to be one of the most formative like efforts towards regulating AI by the U.S. federal government and is also uh, the Biden administration's attempt to kind of show global leadership and creating rules of the game for this technology. So that that is, you know, remarkable progress um, compared to where we had the where we were at the beginning of the year. But, you know, as any um, AI or privacy expert will tell you, we still don't have. Um, any actual laws that, like, you know, major laws that have been written for this technology. Obviously, Schumer has been um, organizing his AI insight forums, bringing a lot of members of industry and people in the civil rights space focused on the technology, but that has yet to bear fruit in terms of uh, new legislation uh, or like a new piece of uh, legislation that's actually signed by the president. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the big components of that AI executive order were, you know, requiring leading uh, AI labs to report the results of training runs, having to put in place some safety guidelines. But a, a lot of that executive order was really requiring government agencies to to write reports and kind of get a state of the, you know, a, a better sense of where the government is in using AI and, and how it might approach the issue. Um, 
I'm wondering if there's just anything for you, Madison, that really like stood out in that executive order as, you know, particularly interesting or kind of consequential, or maybe it wasn't as consequential as we hoped it would be. I think what really stood out for, I think I can speak for both me and Rebecca is um, actually the OMB guidance and just this kind of extra requirements with uh, some known as AI use case inventories, which we've been doing quite a bit of reporting on this year. And Kind of an expansion of some of those requirements. Um, it, there are going to stick around um, these annual inventories that, that were required by Trump administration EO. And um, in our conversation um, with the, the White House after the executive order, you know, they indicated that they're going to be used uh, even more maybe than they have been before, um, potentially being a more central part of the way that the public and government understands how how AI is being used uh, across agencies. Um, so. That was really interesting, I think, uh, as a piece of the executive order and following guidance is, is just how these inventories might be used going forward. Yeah, so you guys have been doing great reporting on this issue of, of the AI inventories, which is the federal government's kind of efforts to figure out how it's using AI, right? So just stepping back for a bit, for folks who might not be familiar with the inventories, just kind of like walk us through what you've found in your reporting on this issue over the past year. So sort of at what Madison hinted at, there was this uh, executive order actually passed at like the very end of the Trump administration trying to establish principles for governing AI as used by the government. And one of those requirements was that all federal agencies were supposed to, um, or not all federal agencies, I should say, but many federal agencies were required to, you know, look look at the technology they had at their disposal, um, look at their plan technology, goals and sort of create a list of all the AI they were using. And this was the first attempt to sort of put AI in like one uh, kind of government, like government document and and have something that, you know, reporters could look at, researchers could look at. Um, But we found massive issues with this. There were a lot of inaccuracies, uh, things that should have been mentioned that weren't mentioned. And it's sort of been like a hodgepodge um, patchwork approach to these um, disclosures, which are supposed to be a cornerstone of uh, uh, AI transparency in the government. Um, and today this uh, GAO just came out with a report basically confirming all of our reporting, which is super exciting. Yeah, that's got to feel good for you guys. So and I think one of the things that your reporting is getting at here is that the government is trying to improve its capacity to deal with AI issues. One of the things that the executive order is trying to do is put in place these these chief AI officers What's your guys' sense of of the government's kind of maturity on when it comes to dealing with AI? Like, where do we stand today? What can we kind of expect for twenty twenty four in this space? Well, if the use case inventories uh, are are any indication, there's growing pains um, with with collecting information about government AI. And um, you know, before chief AI officer requirements, there were uh, responsible AI. Officials, which were established in the same executive order that established the use case inventories, uh, and and those officials were you know uh, responsible for uh, you know, being the point person on on a lot of the AI work and the agency and and the inventories. You know, with with a chief AI officer now, uh, it, it looks like that position is going to absorb some of these responsibilities. And you know, the White House also indicated in, in that interview that I mentioned um, that, that you know that official. Uh, will be in, important um, having a centralized official, but um, you know, I I can if 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 passed as precedent, I can expect maybe some similar growing pains um, with chief A officers, similarly to 
RAIOs. Mm. What kinds of questions are you trying to answer in your reporting in, in 2024 in this space? Like what's, what's key for you going forward? I think something that we've been focusing on already and will continue to focus on um, in coming months is how agencies are appointing these chief AI officers. Um, we've already seen a few agencies naming a, a chief AI officer and just how this is going to be structured in terms of, you know, how it interacts with the CIO, uh, the CTOs at agencies, um, you know, what the backgrounds of these officials are. Uh, and I think going over, you know, how use case inventories evolve, how agencies comply with uh, the requirements for Biden's executive order. Um, and maybe ultimately, if there's congressional action um, on on any of uh, the similar topics that were outlined in the executive order. Rebecca, what's key for you going forward? Yeah, I'm going to try to talk. This is my first time talking in like five days, and it's harder than I um, imagined. So I apologize. You're doing um, great. You're doing great. Okay, nice. Um, yeah, so I think what will also be interesting is to see how federal agencies kind of think about sort of the more high-risk AI use cases that was specifically sort of called out in the OMB guidance, things like facial recognition, uh, surveillance technology, things like that. If you look at the use case inventories, a lot of them are AI for science and like studying the atmosphere or like managing paperwork better. And I think that's not the AI that a lot of people are most concerned with. So kind of like seeing how the government sorts through some of those higher risk um, AI applications is something I definitely have my eyes out for. And so I'm also interested in how some of the exceptions that have been created might kind of interact with those agencies as, as well. Okay. You've mentioned that Congress might move on this issue. Uh, final question for you both. Like, what do you expect in terms of congressional action on, on regulating AI in 2024? Do you, do you think we're going to see a, a big AI bill move in, in 2024? I think we're going to see if we see an AI bill, I think it's more likely to be investing in development of AI rather than reigning in AI. I think, you know, AI will go by the way of the CHIPS Act more than it'll go the way of, of privacy, which we still don't have comprehensive uh, federal legislation on privacy. Last mm -hmm. time I checked. So I, I definitely think don't like, have a privacy bill. Absolutely yeah, not. So I, I think like in the sense that AI is a technology that the government really wants to invest in. And there's yeah. this concern about staying competitive on that. We will see an AI bill. I don't think that we're going to see AI regulation, if that makes sense. But that's my that's my prediction, um, December 12th. So we'll, maybe I'll, I'll be wrong. I think something to keep in mind, too, is the executive order outlined, you know, opening, uh, you know, new facilities or, or requirements for agencies and, and executive orders don't give agencies more funding. Um, so right now they're just reworking their, their existing budgets. Um, so that's going to be something for Congress to keep in mind going forward is the resources that agencies will need to carry out the requirements in this executive order. Okay, great. All right. Uh, I've asked this question of Rebecca already on a previous podcast. So I'll close by asking this question to you, Madison, what's your P doom? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't your know probability of doom. What's your P doom? So I for listeners who might be so for so for folks who might be unaware, P doom is this concept that's that's become kind of prevalent in like Silicon Valley AI circles, where um, to kind of like get get a sense of where you stand on the role that AI will play in society. Um, you know, what is your probability of doom that uh, catastrophic outcomes of AI will actually 
take place, i.e. what's your probability that what's the probability in your mind that, uh, you know, some of like the worst case scenarios of AI actually take pl- taking place. So with that context, I'll ask you again, Madison, what, what's your P doom? Okay. Uh, it's a great question. Um, I think right now it's obviously super hard to tell. Um, you know, I, I don't think, uh, from what I've heard from folks who are in government, you know, AI is, is really not at a level right now, um, where it's, it's going to be, you know, making a lot of decisions completely on its own. There's always human oversight. Um, and I think going forward, um, you know, we're, we're maybe some way off before we see a a scenario where, you know, AI is going to start making decisions about things that, that it's not supposed to. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think as it goes, as it goes forward, um, you know, we're, we're just not really there yet. (laughs) Thank you both for your great reporting on all things government and AI. You will definitely be back on the show in 2024 and we'll revisit these issues. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm joined today by Defense Group reporter Michaela Easley. Michaela, hello. Hi. I'm also joined by Defense Group reporter Brandy Vincent. Hi, Brandy. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. So 2023 uh, was a big year for the space beat, and that's where we're going to be focusing today. Brandy, you've been writing about the Pentagon's efforts to get to the bottom of a series of strange videos and phenomena, what some think are UFOs, but what the Pentagon calls UAPs. So what has the Pentagon's alien hunters been up to? I don't know if they would like for you to call them alien hunters, they would say. My words, not yours. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They have had quite a busy year uh, within the Pentagon's All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, uh, known as AARO, A-A-R-O. Despite the haters, which I will get into some of that later, but Arrow was mandated um, by the fiscal year 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, which is um, DOD's sort of uh, guide for how it's prioritizing its um, investments in the next year. And so it was established in a memorandum a long time coming um, under the Pentagon's number two Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks. And Ultimately, Arrow's job is really to um, lead an effort to characterize, understand, and attribute unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAP, which you mentioned is sort of this new term for UFOs that really accounts for not just flying objects, but objects that can submerse underwater or into the atmosphere in seemingly unexplainable um, ways. And so this was Arrow's kind of first full year in operation. Um, and there are quite a few highlights, I think, um, that I've been tracking. So the first is that um, its caseload is really growing. And so in um, when it was first established to meet Congress's requirements, uh, Arrow was required to sort of create and disseminate this series of reviews regarding its different UAP investigations of sightings that specifically impact the defense and intelligence community. And so um, in April, Arrow's first ever director, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, 
he's a longtime defense scientist and intel expert um, who has been leading the office since it was established. He said that the office was tracking over 650 cases. That was in April, 650. In October, um, I obtained in my reporting a document revealing that the investigation portfolio had reached more than 800 reports, um, quite a jump. And I think that's partly because the office has also met its congressional requirements to um, uh, create uh, different online and in-person reporting mechanisms mm. um, for both uh, DOD officials and current and former government employees and military members um, to report. And uh, the way that they're doing this is uh, through a website um, now that was launched. It's an iterative approach. So it's going to be there's different waves that are coming. The first wave that they had was um, a reporting channel that's specifically for existing military personnel and DOD civilians who experience it in their day-to-day -day job now. They're more recently released um, online at arrow.mil, a way for former um, and current uh, military personnel can report on um, any sort of observations or clandestine um, accounts of uh, the government hiding anything about UFO, UAP. Let me ask you a quick question about these reports. When somebody reports one of these interactions to the US government, like, what does that mean? They have a video that of some unexplained anomalous phenomenon, like they've seen something off the bow of a ship somewhere. Like, what are we talking about? Well, there's quite a range. Um, what comes immediately to mind to me is I've talked to a lot of sources who were military pilots uh, in previous decades working for the Navy and working um, for the Air Force in different uh, sort of jobs and um, around areas that really matter for national security, particularly nuclear sites, observed uh, things and had things caught on their um, sort of uh, the assets they were using, the radar essentially or sensors, um, these different observations of objects that either had really insane propulsion capabilities, so moved in ways that humans, a human pilot could not withstand and capabilities wouldn't make mm. sense. Um, and a lot of those pilots actually were punished back then for reporting um, those and even fired from their jobs. Now there's new uh, sort of um, rules in place that that can't happen and they're asking these people to come back. But what's also interesting, um, and Arrow has not actually confirmed in any of its caseload right now that it's studying this, but a lot of people have reported that they've had uh, symptoms, anomalous health symptoms that sound sort of like Havana syndrome mm. after they observe those on the job. So it would be different sort of things that they specifically related to national security. Um, and so there's been a big jump sort of in the ways, and they're also recalibrating their sensors um, on different military assets to better find these. Um, halfway through the year in the summer, uh, there uh, was a bit of um, controversy that hit Arrow. I mentioned the haters. There was um, whistleblowers who stepped up and eventually had a hearing on the Hill um, where they essentially shared accounts of their own experiences either in the military with UAP, like we were just talking about, that weren't um, followed up on, uh, that there was, um, they had talked to people who had been punished for reporting it. And then um, also some of the most sensational uh, kind of um, 
Accusations? Accusations, I guess you could call them, came from a former uh, Intel official in DOD that um, DOD has uh, secretly recovered UAP-type craft and what's known as non-human biologics or NHI, non-human intelligence, from crash sites. Now, Arrow has denied that, and Kirkpatrick has definitively denied that, but Right after that happened, I actually scooped that Hicks, the Pentagon's number two, elevated Arrow to report directly into her and for Kirkpatrick to report straight to her. And she was holding like weekly meetings with him um, to essentially DOD told me at the time that it didn't have anything to do with what was going on with the whistleblowers and more it was supposed to show that DOD is committed to transparency and that this is a priority for Hicks. Um, so that was really interesting. And then Finally, after this newest iteration of the reporting mechanism, but not the final one, was released in October, um, Kirkpatrick revealed his plans to leave Arrow and to uh, retire from DOD altogether, um, which caught quite a few people in the community, I think, by surprise. Mm. Um, I was able to report that December 1st was actually his last day at DOD. Um, and DOD's, uh, the deputy director for Arrow, um, Mr. Phillips has now taken over. Um, and he is an embed from the intelligence community and he won't be permanent. He's just acting. Okay. Um, and so Kirkpatrick said he was just, he filled his time. He did what he needed to do and he was ready for, to move on to, sort of new horizons from there. He didn't really share what he's doing next. Um, so that's something I'm looking to in 2024. Also, uh, I'm going to be looking towards this next iteration of the reporting mechanism and whether or not NASA and FAA are going to have new responsibilities. Mm -hmm. DOD is really, it's mandated to to essentially make sense of all reports, but it wants to be focused on specifically intelligence and national security aligned ones. NASA wants more responsibility around sort of the broader general public, like your Uncle Bob's experience with a UAP back in the day. Um, and that's the way I like to think of it is, uh, so in that way, um, I'm curious to see if they're going to hand over or if there's going to be more coordination between NASA and DOD there. Um, and then Arrow is supposed to be reaching its full operational capability in fiscal 2024, um, which means it's like in its full iteration. And yeah. so I'll be following that, too. OK, it's a lot. So, yeah, it's it a, lot, a, a lot happening in this space. Mm -hmm. So as someone who is a bit of a, a UFO skeptic, I think that there's probably like a a really straightforward explanation to why all of these things are happening. And I think the explanation is probably just kind of dumb, but that's just, that's just my personal feeling about it. But why should I, as a skeptic, kind of care about this anyway? Um, it's a really interesting and important question. I, I have been following um, the UAP transparency angle since around 2000, I think 17 or 18. At the time I had um, learned about uh, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid's uh, real put how he, he had been sort of leading a push for more transparency and studies around this since like the early aughts. Um, and I had talked to him a few times and he, he always said that it was going to show gaps in our national security, whether it's aliens or adversaries or something else. There are there were a lot of reports about gaps in our sort of uh, 
air, all domain infrastructure where these basically objects were getting through that we weren't paying attention to mm -hmm. that could really cause harm later. And um, he always said there's going to be something that uh, people can't describe and then everyone's going to take this seriously. And literally this year, there were um, multiple incidents with uh, what eventually some are still we don't know what they are, but a few of them were um, Chinese potentially surveillance spy balloons. And they, when the government did not know what they were, they were referred to as UAP. A mm. lot of what these resolved cases in Arrow have been, have been Chinese weather and surveillance balloons, they say, um, as well as other, other type sort of debris and uh, actual assets we should be paying attention to. Mm. For me, I think something that's really interesting um, that unites a bunch of the different cases is their propulsion capabilities and the fact that they are able to essentially do things that the human body could just not withstand and science doesn't explain. And so does that necessarily mean it's aliens? Not at all. Does it mean that there might be uh, an adversary who's developed the next like sort of wave of propulsion that the U.S. doesn't know about or hasn't created itself that could be a threat to us potentially? I think all around we should care because um, it ultimately could could point to what the next capabilities of warfare look like and the next sort of threats that we could face. Um, yeah. So the argument being, we should improve our ability to find UAPs because the United States doesn't know what's happening in it, the airspace around it. And in order to be able to detect some unknown adversary, we need to improve our ability to detect flying objects, if you will. And some of these might turn out to be UAP. Some of these might turn out to be UFOs. Mm -hmm. And some of these might just turn out to be some unknown advanced Chinese capability. Is that the line of thinking? Yeah, well, and also that DOD just needs to have better assets to know immediately, like, okay, we identify this object in this domain. What mm. is it? And so both developing those capabilities to track and watch, but then also to be clear about, okay, the Navy in this region has seen uh, or has observed this happen a bunch. So is the Air Force, but they haven't spoken to each other. Now we have all this data that we can put together on these sort of capabilities there. And so, yeah, I think it it it's just really important with the tons of technology and the sort of technical prowess that the U.S. has that that the nation is aware of what's in the domains that are around it. And this is what that gets back to. Okay. So the space domain is front and center for the Pentagon. We know this. We have a new space force. Um, the department is making major investments in what it's up to in space. This is something you've been covering, Michaela. Talk us through a little bit. What is the Pentagon doing in terms of treating space as a military domain? Right. So, you know, like you said, the space force was, we have a space force now. It was created in 2019. And then U.S. Space Command was also reestablished that same year. So, there is this kind of continued focus on space as a warfighting domain and therefore a growth of space-based warfighting capabilities that we need to fill gaps in current um, in current operations. So, you know, the idea is 
that in the event of a future large-scale conflict with an adversary, it's likely that it would begin in space. That's some of the thinking that is behind some of the leaders at DOD. Um, and that could mean whether an adversary is jamming a U.S. space-based capability, a satellite for communications or a sensor that can track missiles from space. Um, that could also mean you know, outright destroying one of those satellites with, um, you know, directed energy or, you know, more kinetic means. So now the Space Force is kind of looking at creating um, what it calls resilience in space. So that is to basically ensure the systems are operable no matter what happens. If it's jam, if it's jammed, if it's um, destroyed, you know, warfighters will always have those capabilities that are coming from those space-based systems. So. There's really two ways. Um, there's actually there's a ton of ways, actually. I apologize that they're trying to look at this, but there's two key ones that I think are really crucial to mention. And the first one is through this idea of proliferation, which now instead of having these really expensive constellations made of just a handful of large satellites that are launched in geostationary mm. orbit, um, they're moving to this idea of having proliferated, smaller, less expensive satellites in the hundreds forming up these constellations in low or Earth orbit. Um, and that kind that having that proliferation of satellites in the hundreds helps ensure that if one or two are taken out by an adversary, they still are able to work in this big configuration um, in low Earth orbit. So there's one organization that's been really pioneering this. It's the Space Development Agency. They have this program called the Proliferated Warfighter Space Architecture, the PWSA. Um, <laughs> DOD loves its acronyms, uh -huh. right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is this is this organization and this program has really kind of dominated a lot of my coverage this year because mm. um, you know it's a planned constellation of like hundreds of satellites, like I said, um, that will be launched into Leo, and once they're operational, the constellation will give new capabilities to warfighters, whether it's data relay, um, data transport communications, or end-to-end -end missile warning and tracking capabilities. Um, and it's also considered a really key aspect to the Pentagon's effort known as Joint All Domain Command and Control. It's this idea that we want to connect all of our sensors and shooters under a single network, make really fast decisions, and kind of lower red tape for that. Um, so this year, they launched the first foundational set of um, satellites known as Tranche Zero. They're doing this in tranches. Um, those okay. 13 satellites went up into orbit, and that was a really big milestone for this organization. Um, and then next year, they plan to begin launching the first operational tranche of satellites on an aggressive, I would say, aggressive monthly schedule of um, getting at the end of the year. So, And all while they're doing these launches, um, Space Development Agency is constantly awarding billions of dollars and you know approving future tranches of satellites um, to different vendors. I mean, there's a number of vendors that are uh, contracted on this program. And another thing that I think is really interesting about Space Development Agency and something that I will be watching next year is kind of their, the way that they do contracting. DOD contracting is notoriously just lengthy and complicated and hard to get by, but they've they've really started practicing what they're calling spiral development business model. Okay. Um, and this prioritizes like rapid buying of low cost systems using other transactional authorities, um, and that way they can deliver new capabilities and multiple iterations to the PWSA. So the thought is that they can get warfighters new capabilities, the latest technology, and easily pivot to any new threat that um, they're coming up with. So it'll be interesting to see if this model 
prove successful, um, you know, what other aspects of the Space Force or um, even throughout the DOD will kind of pick it up and follow in their lead too. Cool. Yeah. So this is fascinating. And I think we can't talk about like what the Pentagon is doing in space without talking about Elon Musk. Yeah. And <laughs> so I'm curious, like, how does Elon fit into what the Pentagon is doing no, in space? You're absolutely right. So um, Elon Musk's SpaceX is actually contracted on the PWSA. They were one of the satellite mm. providers uh, for they you know, gave a handful of satellites for that first initial tranche zero. Um, They also were the ones to launch those satellites into space. So SpaceX is um, a pretty significant launch provider as they've become a significant launch provider for the Defense Department. Um, Them along with Blue Origin, which is owned by Jeff Bezos and um, United Launch Alliance, which has been a traditional uh, launch provider for the DOD. those three are really um, the ones doing a lot of the legwork for launching um, both missions for DOD, even the National Reconnaissance Office as well, and a ton of other um, non-defense-related missions, such as the Artemis, uh, you know, missions too. So, yeah, I think it's it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the conversations are like on relying. Um, on those companies for such a few amount of companies for significant programs like these to launch these uh, satellites into orbit. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about ULA and and SpaceX. Like mm-hmm. for folks who might not be, I think folks will be more familiar with SpaceX, right? Mm-hmm. And less so with ULA potentially. Like compare these two organizations, like what are they up to and how are what are their relationships <laughs> like with the Pentagon? So you like like you said, ULA has it's old school. ULA yeah, is very ULA old school, is right? One of the OG national security launch providers. They've been doing this for upwards of decades, and they are really, really reliable. But SpaceX has kind of become this new player in this field, new-ish, I would say. Um, and they're really able to kind of offer a more aggressive potentially cheaper, um, you know, innovative way of launching some of these payloads into orbit. So Mm. it's a question of, you know, who will be the primary contractor. It's been ULA in the past, um, but SpaceX continues to win a lot of the contracts for the um, for the National Security Space Launch programs. And so, yeah, it's a great question. It's something to definitely watch for in the future, too. Yeah, I know. Some folks might be concerned about the role that Elon is playing with the military, and um, I'm sure that's a topic we'll return to in future conversations. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation, one that I'm sure will set the conspiracy theorists alight. Thank you, Brandy. (laughs) Thank you, Elias. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.